Woody. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Mark Abraham, OBE, a.k.a. Mark the Vet, was inspired by his Holocaust survivor grandmother to change UK law and dramatically improve how we treat our pets. He's vaccinated dogs in the Mumbai slums, rescued vodka fueled dancing bears in Ukraine, operated in Buddhist temples in post-tsunami Thailand, battled dog meat farms in South Korea, travelled deep into the Amazon jungle and even rehabilitated prisoners with pit bulls in US prisons. All this and more with Mark Abraham on the Big Travel Podcast. Mark, thank you for the donuts. That's really exciting. Nobody has ever brought me donuts before. Well, it's it's just a nice thing to do, isn't it? When you go to someone's house, you bring a gift. Yes, messy as my house is. And they were vegan donuts. They were vegan donuts. Did you think I was a vegan? No, but I just thought, you know, hove, vegan, animal welfare, yeah. it ties in. Yeah, it does. But you're not a vegan. Plant-based. Yeah, I'm plant-based. You are you plant-based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this is a really interesting thing because I know a lot of people who are passionate about animals. And to be honest, I'm going to like animals, but I can give and take them a little bit. Um, but I know a lot of people are very passionate about animals who are also very passionate about eating a lot of animals. Yeah, it's it's confusing. And then you'll get the argument that, well, as long as they have a great life and as long as they're you know locally sourced, organic, and then you think, if you like animals that much, A, why are you complicit in killing them when they're having the best time? And B, you're still supporting violence towards animals. So you can't like them that much. But everyone, me, joins, this... everyone draws the line somewhere, don't they? Well, there's no, there's no line to be drawn. Either you support violence against animals or you don't. Is all animal killing for food all, all violent? Uh, well, if you can find uh, a, a situation of food that's eaten every day by most people that we know that eat animals that isn't, then let me know. But, you know, when you, go, when you see abattoirs and, the, and what goes on behind the scenes, uh, it's all pretty violent. Um, but people are paying for that, they're complicit in that, and with so many alternatives out there, I mean, especially in Brighton and Hove, it's ridiculous, there's really no excuse why people shouldn't be more plant-based, at least. I'm guilty, I only turned um, plant-based sort of five, six years ago, Um, and I'm a vet. I don't try and make people not eat animals, but I just suggest there are alternatives that are worth a try. And usually when you plant that idea in people's minds... It's just a matter of time till they start becoming a bit more, uh, let's say, flexitarian than demanding or needing meat every meal. Uh, it's interesting that you use plant-based rather than vegan. Is that because like there's, vegans have, have had I, negative uh, connotations put on them? Paul I James, find vegan they? quite a trigger for people. Um, people get quite uh, almost offended by it. They do? Why but is that? I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know, and it's a shame. And I always say plant-based because I think it's more accurate, weirdly, um, in terms of description, and um, it's, it seems to be less inflammatory. Back to the subject about everyone drawing the line somewhere. You know, people would eat, you know, cow but not horse, or eat horse but not a golden retriever. Uh, which which sounds funny, but actually, people do eat golden retrievers or dogs like that. I was really surprised when you when you look at the dog meat trade. And we'll go we'll go on to this because I know it's something you worked with, um, but. We'll go, uh, well, like to Gates, I should say. <laughs> the yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm a vegan, except dogs. Yeah. I'm all right with a bit of dog meat. Um, you know, draw the line somewhere. But um, yeah, when you when you see like the dog trade, you think it's going to be some special type of breed of dog, but it's actually 
the dogs that we call pets. Well, there's, there's, it, it depends on which country that the dogs are being eaten in. Because some, say, for example, Korea, you have dogs that are specifically bred to be eaten. Uh-huh. And in other countries, you'll have dogs that are stolen to be eaten. Um, so there is a difference there. But as you say, my, my dear, dear friend, Peter Egan, who some of you may know from, who's an actor and an animal welfare campaigner, he his phrase, selective compassion, describes exactly what you've uh, explained, which is we have dogs that are animals as pets that we love and are family members, and then we go and eat a cow. Um, so it, it, do, it really doesn't make sense, doesn't take much stripping back or drilling down to, to understand that these are all sentient animals that all have feelings and of, of pain and and fun and families as well uh, and sort of we pick and choose who gets murdered and who doesn't oh and it's, it's brutal yeah really. no it is brutal and like many people you know I sort of close my mind to to it half the time I mean not eating meat is one thing but I do eat dairy and I know that the dairy is like a hideous industry you know in many ways and you know I close my mind to it because I can't do. bear to think about people it people compartmentalise we, we've been conditioned for years about what's acceptable what's appropriate what isn't as you say some you know France eat horse quite normally we don't eat horse um, some cultures eat dogs, as we've discussed. In, in India, the cow is sacred. Um, but at the end of the day, you either support violence against animals or you don't. And I'm very proud that I don't. And, and I can imagine, I mean, we'll shut up about it because some people are going to start hating us. But, yeah. um, They'll be turning off about me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But please yeah. don't. But no, but I'm not a vegan. You know, I do have, and actually, I you know, confess, I'm, I also eat fish as well. So that's probably even worse. But, um, you know, it must dawn on you when you're a vet and you're saving animals and then eating them. It's like really odd. Like you're rescuing somebody's pet cat one day and then going home and having a steak. Yeah, it seems a bit disingenuous when you, when you put it like that. And that's because it is. Yeah, what do you think other vets are doing? Do you know many other vets that have gone plant-based? Uh, I know a few, and I know a few vet nurses that have, and it just surprises me how many haven't, and again, how long it took me personally. Um, but yeah, all we can do is just keep, you know, keep spreading the word and not forcing people to do it, but just empowering people with the with the, the the decision they have to make, which is, do I support violence against animals or don't I? And it's quite easy if you're an animal lover not to mm, really interesting that wasn't where I wanted to start no. but I'm, and it was a really interesting point that I'm glad we actually managed to pick up the other thing you brought apart from vegan donuts is your OBE I thought I'd bring it to show you as we started this chat didn't we when I was about to get it so I thought um, I'd bring it actually to our little chat when so I, you're when kind I'd of fresh it. from visiting the it was I was going to say the Queen it wasn't it was Prince Charles it was Prince who... Charles at Windsor Castle yeah in, in uh, early March and it was definitely one of the most surreal most special unforgettable days of my life so that's an OBE for services for animal welfare yeah services for animal welfare yeah amazing so what, what how was the experience it's unbelievable uh, took my mum we were only allowed to take one person because of Covid took my mum um, and you sort of go through all the different rooms in Windsor Castle and then you finally reach this... I mean, all the rooms are stunning, obviously. And then the final room is beautiful and they brief you about how to meet him and what you say and how the conversation works. Um, and you bow and, yeah, and then you go into this most incredible room and there's like a string quartet in the corner playing sort of modern pop songs, but in this unbelievable room. And then you walk up to... Um, to Prince Charles and you have two steps and then you bow and two steps forward and then you have a chat um, for about three to four minutes and then he shakes your hand and then you step back to paces and then off you go. And what did you say to him? Well, he's, he's obviously been briefed so he started talking about um, pets being abandoned after Christmas and stuff and I said about obviously Lucy's Law which was my main campaign that I got the, the OBE for um, was a campaign that was inspired mainly by my grandma. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And the reason for that is she was a Holocaust survivor. She escaped on the kinder transport. And that's a project that Prince Charles is really, really passionate about. So he's hosted sort of lunches for kinder transport Holocaust survivors for the last few years. And she used to go to them. So I said that, first of all, thanks for this whole experience. Um, and second of all, um, you met my grandma a few times 
Uh, she sadly passed away last year. But I really wanted to use this moment to say thank you so much for making her so happy every time she met you. And you could see his eyes sort of light up because it was m- much more of a personal level. Um, and he said, yes, yeah, so, you know, remember her. And it was always nice to meet her. And she was hilarious. The last time she met him, I think it was two years ago, she said, um, you look so young. Do you take Botox? Do you use Botox? <laughs> and he was like, oh, no, no, thank you, though. Um, so they always had a laugh together. And it was nice to sort of um, complete that circle in a weird way and just use that, use that opportunity to thank him for making her so happy all the time. Yeah. Did she remember her experience under the Holocaust? Yeah, what of course. She, she was 17. Yeah. She was 17. Yeah, yeah. She died when she was 100 last year. So she remembered, and the story of her escape is phenomenal because, and very unique because she was too old to get on the kinder transport. transport. So she came home from, her, uh, from school and her parents had gone and the sister had been taken away and the front door had been bashed down. So she sort of escaped and, and found her way, I think, to Leipzig where she found the train that was taking the kids and she was too old. So she ran to a fancy dress shop in Leipzig and bought a nurse's uniform with a Red Cross on it, came back to the station and pretended to be a Red Cross nurse that was saving the children. So she was let on the train, and that's how she escaped. So she, obviously, then they went through, uh, I think, Berlin, and then Holland, and then um, across to Harwich, and then down into Liverpool Street. And by the time she arrived, she was the only one of 10,000 kids who didn't have someone waiting for her. So she was a a 17-year-old German in a country so who had fleed a country that hated Jews and is now in a country that hates Germans and we're just about to go to war in 1939. And so she was taken in, I think, by some Quakers in Edenbridge in, in um, Kent um, and kind of made a life from absolutely nothing. And it was her, her mantra, if you like, of anything's possible and never give up that sort of was my mantra for all my campaigning. Um, so it was nice to sort of... Um, link that back to Prince Charles in the OBE moment because she was, she was such a part of my campaigning journey and still is. Do you know, did, did she know what happened, what had happened to her family? Yes, so she found out in a few years later they'd been um, gassed at Auschwitz. Yeah. Were they Jewish German? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she came from a place called Meissen, which was in East Germany. And we, we went back there a few times with her and she did talks and she did school visits and she was like... You know, she wanted to do as much as she possibly could to stop it happening again. Um, and there's a memorial book in Meissen and her parents' names are there um, with their fate um, that they got murdered at Auschwitz. But um, And then outside her parents' house, original house, there's what's called Solbersteiner, which in German is stumbling stones. And they, they put brass plate, plaques over the cobbles and they write where they write who lived in that house and their fate. So when people walk and they stumble, they keep getting reminded of what happened. Gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're popping up all over sort of Germany. But, but um, her parents, uh, Leo and Regina Mischitsky, were one of the first Solbersteiner, and we were there at the unveiling of it. Gosh, yeah. she sounds like a remarkable woman. Unbelievable, yeah. Hilarious. And, uh, yeah, she was, she, she's obviously very missed. But yeah, lived, lived to be 100, really, and then died a week later. It's not sad, is it, when they die at 100? I mean, you missed them. My nan was exactly. 99, bless her. She didn't quite make her 100th birthday, but I was so, so, so close to her, a bit like it sounds you are, uh, where with your grandmother. Um, it, it was it was obviously awful to lose her, but it's not sad at that age. You no, know, because it's it's, it's at the right ways. time. It's it's when people die way before their time. That's obviously a huge tragedy. So yeah, as you say, it's sad, but it's it's expected. It's a run- wonderful heritage. But if for you if to people have. want to Google um, her, she was featured in the Guardian article. Uh, so if you, if you Google Guardian and then Judy Benton, you can actually read her story. I'd love to do so, that. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's online. There's, there's uh, a few articles written about her. It sounds like you've or you've obviously been to, to where she was from and everything. Mm. Have you been to Auschwitz? Not yet, no, but I, I, I do want to go. My sister's been, um, and it's something that I have to go. I have to go and see at some point, yeah. It's, I'm thinking of going to see myself, actually, with me and my mum are going to go. But um, it, it's good to sort of combine it with a with something... Uh, lighter-hearted when you're there, you know, because I, I was at the war graves not so long ago in in Belgium, seeing my 
great-grandfather's grave and then the next night we spent in Ghent you know having a really nice meal and you know just sort of like de- yeah. so Krakow de- is quite close yeah there, Krakow which is, is the quite one a cool yes exactly city yeah that's where that's where I'm thinking of going Krakow yeah. after it's for the day and then you, you almost feel incredibly you feel guilty mm-hmm. but really lucky you know after you've you've visited yeah. such a place like that for sure so as well as Prince Charles, you've also recently had a, uh, an encounter with our good Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and his wife, Carrie. Yeah, I, uh, I'm very proud to be responsible for sourcing uh, a rescue dog um, for number 10. Um, I remember when Obama got his dogs and he got Portuguese water dogs that were gifted and they were pedigree puppies. And I, it, it was so frustrating because they got so much press that I thought it would have really raised the profile of rescue if he'd chosen rescue. Um, so then an opportunity came about, I, you know, I, I campaigned at quite a high level politically. So a rumour was going around Downing Street that the Prime Minister and his uh, fiance at the time were considering getting a dog. Um, so I got in touch with Carrie, who I knew through campaigning. I said, before you make this decision, can you can we have a chat? She said, yeah, of course. She goes, come to number 10 tomorrow, I'll pick you up at 4pm 4, 4 in the foyer and come up to the flat. This is the flat that's often talked about in the news. The decorated flat. The flat is massive. We think of a flat as like a tiny flat. It's like a three-storey mansion inside number 11. It's so deceiving, you know, from the outside. Anyway, we had a long chat. And, I'm, you know, I'm in the Prime Minister's living room. Um, and I told her about um, a charity in Wales, which I'm um, patron of, called Friends of Animals Wales. And they only rescue and rehabilitate um dogs that are the victims of the third party puppy trade so ex-breeding dogs and stud dogs who are going to be shot because they're infertile or puppies with problems that aren't going to be sold by third parties that are going to be drowned so that's all they deal with i told carrie and carrie's always rescued dogs um she said yeah i'd like a dog from them so i i sort of did an intro to the charity a wonderful lady called eileen jones um, and you know what's happened and Eileen started sending me dogs to send to Carrie and she was then sending dogs to Carrie for them to choose sending and then, the information I'm assuming not actually sending them the dogs no 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 sending the information yeah you know the profiles <laughs> okay, and the crate. pictures and stuff exactly <laughs> and um, yeah that would be a bit more controversial um, and anyway so then I kind of let them get on with it and then um, we had this then I had the little tour of the flat it was quite surreal but it was fascinating and then I left them to it and then about 10 days later, I had just arrived in Spain and um, we were having, uh, friends and I were having drinks on the beach at Malaga, at one of the beach bars, which is, Malaga is a very cool city, by the way. It is. Um, and as you know. Yes. And, <laughs> we have, and the phone rings. And the phone rang and, and sort of we're all like getting drunk on, I think it was just beers and red wine at that point. And... Um, so I was like, it was a number that I didn't recognise, but it was a you know an actual English uh, British number. And normally, I would never ever answer a phone call that I didn't know who it was from. Just I just don't do it. And then, but I thought I was a bit drunk, and I thought, who could it be? So I answered it, and this voice went, "Hello," and I was like, uh, "Hello, is that Mark?" And I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "It's Boris here. I'm with Carrie, and we've decided on Dylan." Right, and I'm like, uh, this has got to be a joke. And he goes, "Are you on holiday?" I said, "Yeah, I've just arrived in Spain." He goes, "I'm terribly sorry to interrupt your holiday." I said, "Prime Minister, you can call me whenever you like. Um, I'm glad you've chosen Dylan, uh, who, and Dylan was a 15 uh, week old uh, rescue pup with an undershot jaw who would have been drowned um, um, that they chose to adopt. And uh, you know, how can we make this happen? And I think they had a, a summit one week and busy the next obviously this is the prime minister um and then i think two or three weeks later uh, i met the guys from wales off the train at westminster tube station they obviously come in from paddington and um walked around the corner into downing street with little dylan in the in the in the puppy carrier and the world's press were just there because it had been leaked in the mail and i think it had been leaked that it was that day in the telegraph that morning and so many news channels cut to it. It was obviously a slow news day. I think Sky cut to it and, and various others. That there's this sort of new cabinet member arriving in Downing Street. So I'm carrying this little puppy and knocking on the door, you know, and of uh, 10 Downing Street. And then we went up to the flat and um, and little Dylan met Carrie and met Boris for the first time. And then we had like a little photo call in the in the garden. And one of the most overwhelming moments for me as a campaigner 
was um, I had a bag of Lucy's Law rosettes, and Lucy's Law is the law that I campaigned for, which is to ban puppies sold in pet shops. Um, and I said to the Prime Minister, I said, Boris, you know, would you mind putting a rosette on? And he was like, no, absolutely. And as a grassroots campaigner, to see the Prime Minister wearing your rosette that you fought 10 years for the campaign was unbelievably overwhelming and definitely a moment. But, yeah, I'm very proud that um, res- the, the profile of Rescue Pets was raised um, because there's now there's now little Dylan in number 10. Can I just take you back to getting that phone call yeah. on the beach in Malaga, slightly tipsy, and... You're kind of going with it. You think, okay, this isn't a wind-up. This not is a wind the prime up. minister. And I put him on speakerphone as well, so everyone <laughs> everyone could listen. And everyone was like, "What is going Everyone's on?" Everyone's like, "Oh yeah. my god, that's so funny!" What yeah. happened when you put the phone down? Did everyone just laugh their heads off? Yeah, and apparently, I mean, I can't really remember the, the phone call now, um, but it, apparently, we spoke for sort of twenty minutes. Um, I remember the first bit, and I think I remember saying goodbye. But God knows what I said in between because we were all quite drunk. Um, but yeah, it's just just shows. It's just a. You know, the Prime Minister is is asking, um, you know, when we can do the handover and choosing which rescue like dog. Like a normal person. I yeah. love it. That makes me like him a little bit more oh, he's, than I possibly He is an did. animal lover. And then, you know, other people, Ricky Gervais who I work with, Brian May who I work with, it's Rachel Riley. All these amazing people and everyone is connected via animal welfare and compassion and kindness and empathy. So... Uh, yeah, camp- so Brian May and the Badgers, he's had a big Badger campaign, hasn't he? Did he did have a Badger campaign. And Ricky Gervais and the dog meat would be Ricky that Gervais right? and anything to do with animal welfare, he supports. He's been an amazing friend and ally over the years. Um, and he gave me the quote for the cover of my new book. Nice. Yeah, So, um, which I'm <laughs> blown away by. Um, so it just shows Did you that, work directly with them? Did you spend time yeah, with Ricky yeah, yeah. and Brian? And just incredible people that... It's almost like they, they see the work that you're doing and their own... Not their only way of supporting, but the easiest way of supporting is just so, sort of to retweet something or to, to give a quote or to, to share something. And they play it down. It's like, well, I only retweeted it. But the, obviously the, the impact that makes, not just because it reaches so many more people, but the value of the endorsement of that person... Um, is is just yeah, it's it's crazy. So this is not the sort of thing you anticipate when you're doing your vet training. What sort of first set you off as the sort of celebrity, the, the vet to the stars, as, as you seem to have become? Uh, it was well, quite randomly. I used to, when I moved to Brighton, I set up the emergency service in Patcham, and one of the best ways of raising awareness about that was um, I approached the Argus and I started writing a weekly column for our local thing. newspaper. Here. Our local newspaper. So I wrote a pet animal related column for free for about three and a half years um, in the weekend August. Then I wrote for latest for quite a bit. Um, and then randomly I had a locum vet come to where we were, the surgery, and they mentioned that Paul O'Grady show needed a vet because he was moving channel. So I went for the casting and I took a script, basically my scrapbooks of all my Argus columns. And, and I said, I love educating people and, and raising awareness uh, uh, to do with animal welfare. And they said, okay, you're in. So I did about five seasons with Paul O'Grady. That made me a TV vet. I did BBC Breakfast. I did This Morning, Alan Titchmarsh, all those sort of shows. Terrifying because they're all live. But what gets you over it is the fact that you're helping so many animals. And that's more important than actually how I'm feeling. But And I also learned that it's good to be nervous because you kind of want to do the best job possible. Um, and, and it means you care about what you're doing. And then once you're a TV vet, Obviously, you're, you have a profile, and that's easier to connect with other people in the media with regard to campaigning, but not essential. Um, and then I saw a, the case of eight puppies coming in, uh, dying of parvovirus in 2009, and that kind of changed everything because I wanted to do something to stop puppies ever being bred in that condition in the, again. And then 10 years later, we now have a law that all breeders are, are accountable, um, which they never have been before by banning third-party sales, so people have to go direct. So it was nice to change the law to help prevent the suffering that I saw those puppies had to endure um, 10 years beforehand. Gosh, you've travelled so much. I've got a list here <laughs> um, due to your, your work as a vet, which is actually, well, and you know, campaigning and anim- animal welfare, which is actually not what you expect. You know, you've really 
made that your, your passion. So in my little list of where you've been, I've got you vaccinating dogs against rabies in the Mumbai slums, rescuing dancing bears in Ukraine, saving cats and dogs in post-tsunami Thailand, rescuing dogs from dog meat farms in South Korea, neutering pets deep in the Amazon jungle, working with pit bulls in a US prison, operating on street dogs in Udaipur. Did you say Udaipur? Udaipur, yeah. Uda- Udaipur in India, as well as performing dental work on a rescued moon bear <laughs> in China. Just, where do we just, start? Just few, yeah, where do we start? And are you just like um, are you like a vet superhero, just sort of slinging on your backpack and heading off, or are these organised situations? Well, I guess there's two points to be made. One is I love travelling, obviously, um, but the other thing is when you do these when you do this voluntary work with these incredible charities and organisations around the world, you're immediately immersed in. I guess you can describe it as being backstage in those places. You're not a tourist. Um, you're not sort of booking on an open top bus. You are literally rolling up your sleeves and getting on with it with locals. And that I find fascinating because you can use your skill, i.e. being a vet, and you're immediately embraced by people that love animals and you can you obviously carry on performing your skills in a different country. The inside of a dog doesn't change. So for one minute you could be in a surgery in Brighton and the next minute you could be operating on a dog, uh, sort of on a table in a, in, a, in a rainforest or in the case of tsunami in a, in a, in a um, Buddhist sort of temple because they, they were the only buildings that were left standing. So, yeah, when I look back, there's been some incredible adventures. Obviously, I've met some unbelievable people and unbelievable animals and uh, it's not over yet. I, I just can't wait to get out there again. And now I have a profile. It's, it's so nice to now help share stuff and raise profile from some of the most amazing charities around the world um and i'm an ambassador for for quite a few of them which is hugely oh, it just feels amazing to be able to help on on those sort of levels but where did it start like maybe let's do it chronologically where did you start sort of traveling off and do you know fixing what? Animals? I, I, it's difficult to to pinpoint an actual trip um but i think the tsunami was definitely one of the first trips and that was i flew out on boxing day so it just happened, and I remember I was on my emergency shift, um, coming off my emergency shift and watching it on Sky News mm. and thinking I just have to be there to sort of help not just the animals but also the humans. Um, so I flew out, and uh, I think I was there for about six weeks, um, helping animals, helping the humans, helping the sort of rescue recovery. Um, and we were in Pipi and Kaolak and, and some fishing villages which weren't touristy, so they weren't receiving that sort of level of help. Um, but yeah, mind-blowing and emotional, and um, I saw some things that obviously people should never see. Um, and the weird thing was, it was so normalised when you're there, seeing bodies and seeing boats in trees, etc., and just the devastation that went on for miles and miles and miles. Um, that it's, but it wasn't really affecting you. But when I came back to Brighton and I walked on the beach, that's when it hits you because you're looking for bodies in the sea or looking for destruction, and the guilt kicks in because you're like, you know, uh, my life is absolutely fine compared to what I've just come back from. And then I raised a load of money uh, over, uh, with some dog shows around the country uh, over the next year and went back and presented them with a check, the charity I was working with. Um, so I felt like I'd done something constructive about it. But yeah, it was um, a phenomenal experience to to be operating, for, I think, about 16 hours a day with someone holding a torch. You're in a Buddhist temple. The monks are bringing you um, rice and banana leaves and bottles of water. And you're treating the animals that have been affected by the tsunami. And um, you're going blow darting uh, on the back of motorbikes for dogs that are lame and stuff to capture them um yeah it was an unbelievable time i'll never forget it i didn't even think about the animals you know that's just i didn't even think about that but of course that's a a huge issue a huge issue because what happened was the animals a lot of the animals just ran and they they went to higher ground when they came back to the beaches where they were fed obviously everything was gone and all the beach bars had gone and the people that fed them were gone so there was a, a there was a rumor that the thai um, police had been ordered to shoot dogs that that were seen eating corpses. That's how mental the stuff was there. So our aim was just to get the dogs all to safety and round them up and cats and put them in the temples and then deal with their injuries and stuff. The the, the saddest thing I think I saw, apart from the obviously devastating human tragedy and sort of piles of bodies, you know, baking in the sun, was um, there was a dog on this paving stone in this wiped out fishing village. I think it was called Barnum Kem, just north of Kaolak. 
And the dog obviously lived there and he was still waiting for his owner to come back, even though it was completely flat. Um, so there's the, those images. I remember also I was operating on a dog and seeing a child being buried like 20 yards away in a shallow grave. And it was like, what, what is going on in the world? But to be part, like all these trips, to be part of something that is creating good things, um, I think is what drives me, not just for animals, but for humans as well. It's, it's, it's all linked. And funny enough, saving the animals gave the surviving humans a focus. Mm. Um, and that was obvious too, in that sort of absolute despair. Um, there was something positive that the humans could contribute to to almost distract them from what was going on or to help distract them. That must have been a life-changing trip. Yeah, it really was. It really was, yeah. So how did you, how did you get to the, the other places, China, South Korea? China is... Uh, China, I'm, I'm an ambassador of a charity called Animals Asia, which hopefully some people will know about, and they rescue and rehabilitate moon bears that are exploited for their bile, sort of ancient Chinese medicine. Uh, which in in brackets doesn't work. Um, But um, so they rescue these moon bears, which are incredible animals. Definitely Google Animals Asia. And they have these sanctuaries in Chengdu and in uh, Vietnam. They're making amazing progress in terms of banning the actual practice. Um, But yeah, I was was able to operate on a a moon bear, which are bigger than humans, um, which was fun. And then the dog meat trade was with... um, Humane Society International. Did, hang on, hang on. Just yeah. back to the, the moon bear for a minute. I mean, how big is a moon bear? Uh, I mean, I'm 6'3", so taller than me. Yeah. And um, is it... I've always wondered this thing about vets, because, you know, if you're, if you're a surgeon, human bodies are very much like each other, you know, on the inside at least, I'm assuming. Because, um, you know, a, a, operating on a cat is obviously quite different to operating on a dog or a bear you know this is obviously your first bear I mean how are there any nerves where you're when you're cutting open the bear or is this just what you do to be honest with you the the template for most mammals is very similar and you're able you're able to adapt I mean you think about a chihuahua versus a great dane you know Mm. there's a a hell of a lot of differences there but the basics are the same and it it does sort of go across and also you're you're in the presence of people who are experts in moon bears so you're kind of being guided by them rather than sort of going in all guns blazing assuming everything's the same i love the fact they're expert in moon bears but they're bringing in the vet from brighton well i was (laughs) i was yeah i was only popping in as of they they very kindly um (laughs) i say let me operate but they very kindly allowed me to you know to to do the basics and it was just an amazing feeling again to be part of the solution um, and then, yeah, Korea was Humane Society International, which is a, a phenomenal charity um, against the dog meat trade. Um, and that was, well, it was, it, was, it was a blessing and a curse in many ways. One, was, the blessing was we freed over 100 dogs from a dog meat farm after HSI, the charity, had negotiated with the dog meat farmer and they get them to sign a contract and they, they have to, then they demolish the dog meat farm um, and that farmer does something else. Um, the, the curse was we actually visited a dog meat farm that hadn't been negotiated yet. So we sort of saw all the dogs, but you just know they're going to be murdered mm. and they're going to die. And you see the, the posts uh, where they're going to be electrocuted and butchered. Um, and that was absolutely heartbreaking because as you approach the kennels, they get excited. As you get closer, they think they're going to be next because they can all view what happens to their friends. So they start rolling backwards, trying to get behind each other. It's one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen. Um, so hopefully, you know, they've done the negotiation and hopefully that will be closed down at some point. But it is, it is a, a tradition that is dying out. It's a very much an older generation delicacy and the young Koreans are kind of ashamed of it. So hopefully there's not long left to till that sort of just fizzles out. How do you convince people, you know, and, and should we? Do we have the right to go somewhere and convince people that something they've been doing for centuries, their tradition, is wrong? But, you know, on the flip side, we are killing and eating cows and chickens and pigs willy-nilly okay. by the hundreds of thousands every we, day. In my opinion, we have absolutely no right to tell people what to do and what to eat. The difference is the way that they're killed. Now, here... I know I'll keep going on about violence, but it's usually sort of stunning first um, before animals are slaughtered. They're they're tortured first. So they believe, or a lot of people believe, it's uh, the meat tastes better when it's been more stressed. So they bore them alive and they skin them alive. 
So that's kind of the difference. I guess on another level, the difference would be you're, you're eating a pet compared to eating a, a, a farm animal. You're eating, a, you know, socialised yeah. rather than a, um, um, a farm animal. But to me, a life is a life. Again, referring back to my dear friend Peter Egan, you know, when you're talking about animal rights, the right is the right to life. And I think all animals have as much right to life as we do. Um, but the, interestingly, I was at a, um, a, a reception once in Westminster, which was against the dog meat trade. And I looked at the, there was well, some, some supply food, some don't. And there was ham sandwiches, chicken sandwiches. <laughs> and what was it? I think it was either, uh, I think it was tuna. And I, I just I went immediately to the organisers and said, I find it strange that you're telling another country not to eat dogs and cats but you're serving up different animals here. I said, do you not think it's a bit, again, disingenuous? And they went, oh, do you think so? <laughs> so it's it's amazing how people just don't get the connection. And um, again, I think it's just something we, we all should take responsibility over with so many alternatives around. Um, we, we don't need to kill animals and eat them anymore. We never did. What about did. the people that will say you need it for protein? We don't. I mean, there's so many vegetarians around. So many vegans around, plant-based, whatever you want to call people that just refuse point blank to eat animal flesh. I mean, it's even now moving to the pet market, pet food market. You know, there's a lot of vegan dogs out there, a lot of plant-based dogs. Um, Most of the dogs in in India um, and Thailand are vegan just because meat's so expensive and they don't need it. You know, um, dogs are omnivores. So... It's it's interesting. It's changing so quickly in people's attitudes. No, that's interesting. As a vet, you'd say that dogs don't need meat. Cats do, um, on the whole, but dogs do very well on on plant based. And you know, I've, I've I've worked all over the place and seen dogs do very well on meat, and I've seen dogs do very well on on vegetables. And much like us, we all indi- we're all individuals, and we all enjoy certain food and do well on certain food. But dogs can do well on plant based as long as it's obviously a complete diet, mm. and people just don't think, oh, I'll make it up myself and it'll be fine. It needs to be complete. And there's some fantastic brands now on the market, especially in the last few years, that are producing these complete diets um, that work. Yeah. Because you can be a crap and unhealthy eater and a vegan, can't you? You know, you have to like... Yeah, you have to absolutely make, right. Yeah. You have to make as an long effort. as it's done whatever, properly. Whatever diet you yeah. have, you have to make an Do effort. Do it responsibly and, and it's yeah. fine. Which whether you're a, you know, a meat eater or whatever, it, also, it means a lot of healthy vegetables and fruits and yeah and i think you, and you know these days you've got to think of the impact on the planet you know the less meat that's consumed is you know it's, it's much better for the planet and and i think pets do contribute to that pet food does as well um so it's just about being responsible and being the best you can be i think I'm struggling with the planet because I, I haven't eaten meat for 22 years so i feel that that's good i've never owned my own car and i get public transport everywhere and walk I did 35,000 steps the other day, just walking around Brighton, just pottering around. And uh, it is a lot, but then I do fly, you know, and a Mm. lot of people are talking about alternatives to flying, which I'd love to do, but it's bloody expensive. And I'm paying for me and two children. And then, you know, I I looked into getting the train from London to Spain, to the south of Spain, where my parents live in Malaga recently. And I got as far as Paris and then flew from Paris to Malaga because it was just going to cost us about £700 for the train and take three days. And that's if we didn't stop off in any hotels and eat and drink along the way. And it's just prohibitively expensive which mm-hmm. is such a shame but I you know everyone like you know I feel like mentally I'm offsetting my flights yeah. by um by not having a car and not eating meat yeah I think that's sensible I think every, everyone should be doing what they can and just be conscious about the decisions they make and I think over time the more I think the more responsible decisions you make I think that encourages more responsible behavior you kind of get into that um, into that routine, if you like, and, and you're constantly looking out for opportunities where you can be more um, ethical, let's say. But yeah, everyone's different and everyone's on their own path, their own journey. I don't think it's right to force anyone to do what they don't want to do, but I think it's all about empowering people with the information so they can decide if they choose to when and, um, when and, and where it's appropriate to make those big decisions. Tell me about the Amazon. Amazon is unbelievable. Um, I, was, I haven't been to the Amazon. I was backpacking around uh, and I did a few months in, in Brazil. And 
Well, I've been to two Amazons actually. I've been well, it's the same Amazon. I've been to the one in Brazil and <laughs> the one in Peru. Amazon. They don't have a second one. Either, as far as I <laughs> the know. one in the what, the Amazonian jungle in Brazil is is the one to go to. Peru is sort of a smaller version. Yeah, pathetic little Peruvian Amazon. Don't, no, not pathetic. Can't say that. Um, but in <laughs> really and also, pathetic Peruvian Amazon, right? Um, with your little sloth, not yeah, the exactly. big ones. Small um, trees. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I stayed for two weeks with a Amazonian Indian native family on the banks of a tributary and absolutely I mean it couldn't be more in the middle of nowhere um, and um, yeah you see pink dolphins and grey dolphins and toucans and macaws and monkeys and it's a piranha I mean it's, it's it is paradise it is paradise and then obviously it's rainforest so it rains a lot and you have rainbows <laughs> and double rainbows and you go um, on canoes like in and out of the waterways and especially at night you do these little night trips and you're shining your torch and these little red dots you see and that's the eyes of the alligators <laughs> and then they sort of go under and you can feel their backs scraping the, the bottom of the canoe and you can you know feel your heart beating and, and the stars and there's no pollution at all so it's, it's, it's yeah it's phenomenal but it's interesting because I got so used to being in the Amazon even though I was there for sort of two three weeks and then you go down to Pantanal um, which is the swamp lands on the uh, Bolivian border, which is also beautiful. And then you sort of go to Iguazu, which is famously one of the most um, beautiful, natural wonders of the world, the waterfall on the border of Argentina and Brazil. And then you slowly come around uh, Ilha de Mel, Ilha de Grange, Rio, and, you, and, you, and civilization sort of builds up along the way. So from going to the Amazon, which was just like nothing, and you're just li- sleeping in hammocks and have no... Nothing, you know, in terms of electricity, obviously, to go to somewhere like Rio and you see the sort of uh, general gradual progression as you travel hours and hours in such a massive country. Um, and it was just sad to be back in civilization because I got so used to being surrounded by nature. But yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, and if you can spend as much time as you can, because when you fly into Manaus, obviously it's, it's, it's full of eco tours this and come and jungle lodge and they're all well I wouldn't say all a lot of them are quite close to Manaus because they you know they facilitate people that are traveling and backpacking or rich tourists who don't want to um go too far into the into the forest uh, into the rainforest but if you can I'd set time aside and I think we were like three hours on a coach and, and then two hours on a canoe to where we were staying which was so remote and if anything happens to you, and it can, because there's plenty of snakes and spiders to do damage, you know, it's, it's game over. I was going to say, do you feel vulnerable? Oh, massively, feel but that, vulnerable. that's what makes that it feel... Yeah, that's what makes it feel quite exciting. And you do swim in the water when the piranhas, piranha have fed. So there's certain times of the day where it's more safe to swim. We were in a place where the soil was... Um, meant that the mosquito larvae couldn't reproduce. So there was no malaria and there was no mosquitoes. Um, but you're seeping in the jungle and you're hearing all these sounds and this <laughs> light streaming through the canopy and, you know, you go with a guide and they, they can tell by the droppings on the, on, the, on the floor which way the monkeys are, are going or coming and the capuchins and, and, oh, it's, yeah. I mean, for a nature lover and an animal lover, it, it was actually heaven. Yeah, and I'd like to go back there one day. I'm happy with those places until night falls, you know, and then I'm like, yeah. oh, I wish and I was at a five-star so, hotel. But it's so loud as well when, when, when dusk <laughs> falls. It's the noise of the jungle and then also, obviously, the dawn chorus. Uh, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing um, and it does make you feel kind of insignificant. And, of course, it's about survival of the fittest for a lot of these tribes, so they'll have 20 kids um, because they, some of them will die. They'll get bitten by snakes or whatever. But the responsibility these kids have is, I mean, I remember at the time my nephews were, I think, three and five, and they had these parties and presents and lived in a nice part of London. And then when I went travelling, you have a three-year-old with a machete peeling <laughs> potatoes and a five-year-old sort of going across the river, which is infested with piranha and alligators, to get some supplies from another tribe. And it's like, oh my God, we have a lot to learn in this I country. Can compa- compare that to this morning when I was trying to get my kids to school and they don't even know to shut the door. I was, I was saying to their dad on the phone, I was like... How do they not know? Like that, the last person out shuts the door, and the last person to come in the house shut the door. I have to, otherwise, we just come in the house and we're here for like half an hour to realize the door's wide open. And then you've got these kids, you know, with machetes and it's, it's insane. You know, they're all given responsibilities at such a young age, which is normal. Um, and you just think, wow, we. I think we have a lot to learn from these in, incredible indigenous tribes. When my kids come home, I'm going to 
give them a machete. That's the first thing I'm going to do. Yeah. Is give them a machete. Definitely do that. <laughs> and say, look, for the Mark record, said it's all right. For the record, I'm not endorsing machetes for children. Thank you. There's another the charity, machetes for children. Machetes or, for or, children. Or hashtag. Children. Yeah. <laughs> Should have one. Um, so the re- Ukraine. You went to Ukraine, um, yeah. which is obviously in a very precarious and sad situation at the moment. But what were you doing now? So I was working with a charity called Four Paws, who are a phenomenal charity, one of my favourites. Their head office is in Austria, but they have a UK office. And they do stuff about the illegal puppy trade, and they do stuff about bears, and they have sanctuaries over there too. Um, So we were neutering dogs and cats. uh, I think it was just east of Kiev, like an eight-hour drive as soon as we landed. Um, massive country, Ukraine. Mm. Um, and then we were transferring a bear from a zoo to a sanctuary. Um, so that was uh, that was interesting. So yeah, it's. I mean, what a country? How did it go? Was it all okay? Yeah, it was all okay, and the, the people are lovely. You know, I do. I mean, it was ten years ago. Um, made some really good good connections over there. Were they dancing bears? Were they sort of performing bears? Yeah. So one of the traditions in Ukraine, I don't think it's that popular anymore is a bear in a cage outside a restaurant and they just feed it vodka. And so they're sort of all over the place. And um, yeah, that's, that's unbelievably cruel, obviously, and exploitative. But I think, again... It's like really tra- random. Yeah, it's really random. And I think it's another tradition that's sort of generally dying out because I think young people now, especially with access to social media, are just be- being made so aware of what's right and what's wrong when it comes to animal welfare. Um, so again, it's a it's an old-fashioned tradition that's... Um, that we encountered and that we were able with the charity to do something about. Yeah, so we, we took the bear back to a bear sanctuary where I believe it still is quite happy, um, even with the war going on. I think they, they... I spoke to the charity the other day, actually, and because when the war started, the bears were still hibernating, so they didn't disturb them. But I think they're starting to wake up now because it's spring, so I'm speaking to them in the next few weeks and I'll find out some updates. That is, um, again, something that you don't consider, you know, when there are big tragedies like the, the tsunami and the war as well, in this sense, um, you know, what does happen to the animals? Yeah, and there was, there was so quite the a lot of footage in Kiev Zoo. Um, and it's amazing you see these people who are um, selfless, you know, staying behind, feeding them, driving supplies to, to make sure the animals have them. There was a, there was a, a fear that, if you know, if you release these animals, of course, then you've got wild animals running around yeah. like the city. So what do you do? Do you do you kill them all, or do you just make sure that they're they're safe and looked after? Which I think the latter happened. Somebody's got to stay behind. Like if there's an yeah. evacuation, somebody's got to, uh, to stay behind. Some amazing stories coming out of war zones where people just do stay behind because they are so dedicated to those animals that they've always looked after. Yeah. And you're working with stray dogs in the Mumbai slums. India, I think, is my favourite country. Mm, I've been there twice. Um, it was never on my list, but I had the opportunity many years ago well many years ago maybe 12 years ago to go to Mumbai um, and I contacted a charity called Welfare of Stray Dogs India this is what I do I'll, I'll maybe go to a country and then I'll look up whether who the local charity is they were incredible Welfare of Stray Dogs India um, great campaigners as well they stopped dogs being um, poisoned and killed because of the ra- potential rabies risk and transformed the culture to one of neutering ear ear tagging and basically not killing um so i joined them for a week in the slums oh my god what a place again behind the scenes you're not a tourist visiting a slum you are working with locals and going all around various slums of mumbai every day the heat was unbelievable there's little shade you can't really drink everything that's given to you in terms of even water bottled water so you inevitably get... Everyone gets sick in get India, right? Sick, Everyone yeah. gets sick, But it's part of it. I was blown away by the colour, the families, the, 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 the fact that these people have less than nothing, and yet they're still coming out with gifts for you. Um, and I was filming some stuff out there, um, and they were holding the camera and holding my phone, and just the kindness and empathy and compassion in the slums was just... It was incredible, and I'll never forget it. The other place I've been in India... Well, two places really. Udaipur, which you mentioned, that's in Rajasthan. That's the home of um, one of the greatest charities in the world, in my opinion, called Animal Aid Unlimited. And they rescue street dogs um, from the streets of Udaipur and surrounding area. They also do school visits, um, emergency medicine in the streets and loads of other stuff. Rescue all sorts of animals. 
and I spent twelve days on the sanctuary with them, and did school and did a school visit and and um, yeah, did lots of sort of neutering and looking after the animals and the emergency staff. I just basically followed all the different aspects every day. But Udaipur for me, I, I think it's the best place I've ever been mm. in my life. It's so beautiful. There's something about India that makes it so special. It, and people, you either going to like it or you're not. It's chaos. It's 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 dangerous. It's exciting. It challenges you on every level, um, and that, that's why I love it. You know, it's sitting in the back of a, a, a tuk-tuk, just, you know, with the cows in the roads and, and just that madness. But it's kind of an organised madness. So I had an amazing time there, and I can't wait to go back. And then I went down to Agra, um, which is where the Taj Mahal is, obviously, but there's also an amazing charity called Wildlife SOS, and they rescue bears as well um, and also elephants. So I spent some time on their sanctuary as well. So it's... I don't know. It's it's just a wonderful way to see the world via animal welfare, sanctuaries, rescue shelters, meeting people associated with those kinds of activities. And, you know, there's a few more on my list that I need to sort of tick off and definitely a few more that I need to revisit. How can we as travellers make sure we visit animals responsibly? I've got a, a nine-year-old, almost 10-year-old, and he is obsessed with animals. It possibly wants to become a vet, although there's a lot of training, isn't there? How long is the training? Tra- well, it's five, <laughs> mainly five years. In Cambridge, I think it's still six. Um, right. But yeah, five-year degree. Yeah, uh, that's not so bad, I guess. Um, and um, But he's now taking me to, whenever we go to places, we're going to zoos around the world now. This is our plan. In fact, I had my most recent guest on before you was Callie Beaton, and she's a comedian, and her son trained as a, is now a zoologist, um, is a zookeeper down in Paynton. Um, but he, as a child, made her go to all the zoos all over the world. So I'm developing a love of animals now through this experience. I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago going to the zoo. And zoo, the idea of zoos always used to make me shudder a little bit because I, 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 think, I think they've moved on in most places. I, think, I like to think they've moved on into conservation and you know, wildlife care rather than just, you know, here's a tiger in a cage. How can we as travellers make sure we're doing that responsibly? Because you mentioned elephants and now people are saying, don't go for the elephant rides. Don't swim with the dolphins. What what can we do? What can't we do? It's a really, really good question. And there is, you know, the differentiation between what's a zoo, what's a sanctuary, what's conservation. I think, first of all, do your research. It's pretty obvious now online if you, if you just Google where you think you're going to go, whether it's a good place or not. Obviously, places like the water parks with the dolphins and the orcas in the States are no-goes. I mean, that's such, such cruelty. Uh, on on a on a mind blowing level, um, I'm not a massive fan of zoos, which will be unsurprising to most listeners. Uh, as a any, vet, any zoos? Well, I think sanctuary is the is the word that you need to uh, aim for because zoos. Actually, they don't use zoo a lot of the time, do they? Like my local zoo in Spain, which we're members of because the kids love it, is the bio park, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you've just got to do your research and, and kind of just get a gut feeling of what they're about. The elephant ride is really important because elephants, in order to sort of accept a human on, on top of them, they are absolutely brutally um, punished from, from an early age. Their spirit is broken and they will just accept anything that happens to them because they know that if they don't, they're going to be prodded with a, you know, a spike or, you know, chained up with uh, these horrible sort of ankle bracelets with spikes on as well. Um, So their spirit is broken and no elephant in its right mind would ever let a human near it, let alone, you know, on on its back. So anywhere that offers elephant rides is definitely a red flag. But on the flip side, there are sanctuaries, and I think that is the most important word around the world that you can you keep your distance, um, and and they're so transparent in what they do and how those animals happen to be in their care, and I think just by researching, you can often sense you know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and obviously don't give business to the to the bad guys. But yeah, just just do your research. But for example, you know, London Zoo, something that we go to here. Yeah, it's it's a tough one because you know you gotta you gotta weigh up what you value as exploitation, I suppose. And I think that they are I guess they're as ethical as they can be mm. and they do present opportunities for adults and children to experience animals close up. But then on the flip side you you could even say, you know, so many modern zoos now are producing holograms or alternatives to actually having the live animals there um it's a tough one it's a tough one and i think you know you you can look after animals in the best way you possibly can and this 
transcends to keeping reptiles as pets or keeping spiders as pets. I have to get a snake next week. Do you know what I mean? My kid wants a snake. And it's very, very difficult and questionably ethical to keep exotic pets, wild animals, if you like, as pets, you know, because all their instincts are saying, what am I doing in a house in Hove rather than in, in a jungle in the Amazon? So, We're all thinking that, really, about ourselves sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, but I think, you know, it's very, very difficult to keep animals, to, to tick every single box in terms of all their, not just basic needs, but all their specific needs as a species, let alone, or a breed. So, yeah, everything requires thought and research. And, um, yeah, if, you, if there's any part of you that thinks maybe this is a bit wrong or cruel or exploitative, then just don't do it. Mm. But people don't know, do they? They don't know about the. They didn't know about the elephant rides or the. You know, it, it was. It's just such a part of things. When you, I mean, I've never taken one, but I have been to SeaWorld, You know, in Florida. Yeah, well, I, that, I did when I was young, and also, um, you know, you've been to Portobanos in in Marbella. I remember going as a kid, and there were people with drugged up monkeys. Oh yeah. For photos. We've moved on. We've mm. moved on in so many ways, thankfully. Um, so again, if if it feels wrong, then don't engage with it. Um, raise awareness about it. Question people about it. Challenge people. Use social media to to raise awareness. There's so many tools that we have now um, that we can kind of make a difference, even if it's a tiny difference, or we don't even think it's making a difference. Just by sharing content and making people aware can often instigate change, like a behavioural change, or maybe even legislative. Um, but there's, there's things that we can do if we care enough. One of the most fascinating things I saw on your list, well, you've done some incredible things, but you spent time <laughs> in the States working. Well, there were two things, two major things you did in the mm-hmm. States, but one was something to do with animals in prison. Mm-hmm. What was that? Charity called um, New Leash on Life, which is such a See good... See what they did there. Such a, good, um, such a good name. Leash being lead in American. They basically go to the shelter the kill shelters of which there are a few in philadelphia and all across the states and it's mainly pit bulls that people have either either bred or bought and abandoned and they're going to die they're on death row um so the charity go into these shelters they pull out the pit bulls and the dogs that are going to be killed and they match them up with teams of two or three prisoners in the prisons and it's one of the most beautiful <laughs> concepts I think I've ever encountered and incredibly successful. So the prisoners then work with a behaviourist and they keep the most meticulous diaries. They get uh, training sessions, I think it was three times a week. Um, they have to write down, you know, where the animal poos and the consistency. I mean, the real minutiae detail. And the prisoners train the dogs. The dogs train the prisoners with regard to empathy, compassion, kindness. Um, the prisoners get reduced parole uh, if they accept the programme. And also the prisoners get guaranteed work in the animal shelter when they come out. And I was lucky enough to spend some time with them. And I've obviously never been to a prison before, um, <laughs> especially a US prison. And it was, I mean, it was a proper one that you like you see on the, on the movies. It's scary, right? I think it was more fascinating than scary. And, and I was meeting the, the inmates and, and they were introducing me really proudly to their dogs and watching them train them and watching the difference they were making. And it's proven now with uh, reoffending rates are reduced when these prisoners have gone through this programme. So it works on so many levels. It saves animal lives, it saves human lives, um, and, it's, and it prevents or, or definitely reduces reoffending. So, yeah, amazing to be around that sort of project as well. But did it's, you meet it's, any interesting characters like, who stood out of the prisoners? There was there was a guy that kept sort of beckoning me over, and I was <laughs> and he was about six foot eight, massive guy, which was quite intimidating, and I couldn't work out why. And every time I was sort of walking around this sort of horseshoe of inmates, he just kept staring at me really weirdly and beckoning me over. And I thought he's he's got beef with me. I don't know why. I don't know how. Does he hate English people? Does he hate vets? Does he hate people that are visiting for the day? What is wrong? And as I'm going round the horseshoe, I'm getting closer to him and his two prison mates with the dog. And he's just staring at me, just staring at me. And I was like, he's, maybe he's going to kill me. Who knows? And, he, and he, I finally get to him and I'm looking up and uh, he's like, come here, come here. And I'm like, what? He goes, no, come closer. So I'm literally leaning into him and he grabs me softly round the back of the neck. 
and just basically says, your flies are undone. <laughs> I mean, in, in American, it was, your zipper's undone, dude. And he said it so loud and with a deep, booming voice that everyone heard and they found it hilarious. So all of a sudden, this is English vet standing in the middle of this horseshoe of US hard men inmates. Um, and he was right. My, my zipper was undone. So I sort of zipped it up and carried on. And it, was, it kind of broke the ice. Oh, that's so funny. But I went from thinking he's like, going to strangle me, because he could, um, uh, to being sort of the, the butt of everyone's jokes. And I think that the story with the flies undone just, I don't know, it was just a, a cherry on the cake, really, for... For, for emotional feelings that day and, and it, it's amazing that um that connection between a human and an animal you know i see this in in real life which is my my neighbor has got a dog recently and my nine-year-old has a lot of health problems we don't really know what they are they're headaches and stomach aches and lots of different health problems when he spends time with bobby the downstairs doggy as he's known it, it lights him up you know and and that's probably what they do when they're taking pets into hospitals and absolutely pets as therapy yeah um, yeah you know, a lot of a lot of pets are used for kids or um, adults that don't speak or, or won't speak, and there's obviously it unlocks something that they feel relaxed. You know, there's kids that read to dogs now, um, so this the the power of pets and the power of animals in terms of the therapeutic um, qualities is now that's being exploited, which we like because you know again animals benefit and humans benefit. Uh, rather than exploiting the actual animal, it's exploiting what they can bring to the table. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's so many different um, assistance dogs charities now, therapy dog charities. Yeah, it's just wonderful to see. Yeah, we're definitely moving in the right direction with a lot of animal welfare projects. Whilst in Philadelphia, um, there's another charity, which again, I'm a huge, huge supporter of them and, and the Grace and Steve who run it called Finding Shelter. Um, and showing me they, your t-shirt yeah, there, which you're wearing. I love it, flying the flag or literally wearing the t-shirt. Wearing the t-shirt. And um, they rescue and rehabilitate ex-puppy farm breeding dogs. They call them puppy mills over there. And for anyone that doesn't know, that's sort of these large sort of commercial breeding operations that usually um, sell their puppies into pet shops or third-party dealers, which obviously isn't cool because puppies need to be seen with their mum when they're born. Um, and, yeah, they, they they rescue and rehabilitate these dogs that are a, lot, a lot of the time on death's door. They've been overly bred. They've got eye problems, heart problems, skin problems. They cost an absolute fortune to, to fix. But Finding Shelter, and I'd recommend everyone looks them up, Finding Shelter, Animal Rescue, um, do some amazing work and... Um, Unfortunately, in America, it's still legal to sell puppies via third parties. Uh, a lot of the puppy breeding is done in, in Philadelphia, in, in, in Pennsylvania, in Lancaster County, which is famous for the Amish. And a lot of the Amish, again, weirdly, so when I went there on, on the, to accompany them on some rescues, they'll do this, they'll have a pet dog, and then they'll have a, a puppy mill at the back of the, the house. So you've got this, exactly the same animal. One's being looked after like royalty mm. and one's being exploited. Um, well, until they're bred to death, really. So again, it's just, just this weird compartmentalism that people have and this sort of selective compassion. Um, but yeah, uh, an amazing charity. Um, they're fighting for a law called Victoria's Law, which is to ban the sale of puppies, kittens and rabbits in pet shops. Uh, they're making some good progress. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, we don't seem to have puppies... And kittens in pet shops here anymore, do we? No, that was, that was my law that changed. That was your law. Yeah. That was so your law. That was, that was amazing. So that's, so that's Lucy's, Lucy's law. law. That's Lucy's law. So you're not, it's illegal now to sell a puppy or a kitten via a third party, such as a, a pet shop. Um, that's and, really incredible work. Yeah, and it took 10 years. And um, now we've got it in Wales, Scotland, soon to be Northern Ireland. And hopefully towards the end of this year, we're also banning the import of young puppies from overseas puppy farms. So how should we buy a puppy if we want to buy a puppy? Um, from Direct from the breeder, which is the only... Well, there's two legal routes now where you can, let's say, buy or choose a puppy. One is to go directly to the breeder and see the puppy or kitten interacting with its mum in the place it was born, so the breeder is accountable. The other way to choose a puppy or a kitten is obviously to go to a rescue shelter, which there are many of across the country, where you can get puppies, you can get different breeds. Um, all animals have been behaviourally assessed. Um, and a lot of rescues now, unlike in the olden days, where it was sort of maybe aggressive animals or animals that peed everywhere, uh, nowadays it's animals that maybe the family has run out of money, especially at the moment. 
um, animals that have been bought in the pandemic that people just can't cope with. It was a good idea at the time. People have gone back to work or people have died. They, you know, there's so many different factors now where these sort of... A, love, a lovely phrase I heard once called plug-in pets. They're just ready to be pets. A lot of them have been neutered already and you know, treated for fleas and worms and microchipped. So they're ready to go. So my advice to anyone listening, if they're considering getting a, a pet... Uh, is to always, always, always consider um, visiting their local rescue first before they make any other decisions. And you've got a book coming out soon. Yeah, I, um, I've got a, my new book, because I've already... Uh, my Lucy's Law book came out um, two years ago, and that was about the campaign to ban commercial dealing of puppies and kittens, so banning puppies and kittens in pet shops, for example. And that was a 10-year campaign. And then I thought... I've learned so much over a, over a decade now of campaigning and I never was ever into politics or law or history or anything like that when I was growing up. Um, so I learned literally from scratch as a grassroots campaigner, you know, in terms of changing behaviour, raising awareness, changing laws. And I thought, how handy would it be for anyone who cares enough about making a difference to have a book where they understand all the tools that are out there that most people may not know about or certainly not how to use them effectively because if you're a grassroots campaigner you have minimal resources especially financial but there's something that we can all do and it ranges from retweeting a petition link to leading a your own campaign um so i i wrote it up and and i started last summer so it's it's seven months it took to write uh, and it comes out on june the 9th and the title is based on a Dalai Lama quote, which is, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. So the book is called Hashtag Be More Mosquito, uh, How to Campaign and, and Create Change. And it goes through every chapter is a tool that's out there from e-petitions to use of social media, traditional media, celebrities, um, select committees, all the different things that we can all do and all have access to and are largely free that can make a difference. Um, and I really want people to use it to just help them make the changes that they want to see because anything is possible. And if I can do it, having no knowledge of mm. campaigning or politics or law, then literally anyone can do it. Brilliant. And, and I, I do recommend, obviously, people buy it, which <laughs> would be nice, but, but buy it because they want to use it um, to make the world a better place. And I think we're in a society now where we blame and we... It's never our fault or it's up to rich people to change stuff or maybe there's just apathy because it's not important. Um, but I think if we can swap that sort of negativity for positivity and, and, and constructive energy, then we all play a part in fixing and the solution rather than everyone just moaning and being um, upset all the time. So I, I hope it I hope it helps. And um yeah, I enjoy. I'd appreciate feedback when people have sort of read it, and and hopefully they can let me know that it's it's helped them. Hashtag be more mosquito, love it. Hashtag be more mosquito. If you want any more information about what I do and stuff, then Twitter's probably the best place. Which what is, are you on Twitter? I so, mean, I follow you anyway, but uh, at Mark Levet. Mark so, with a C. And I do have a Facebook page, um, which is Mark Levet as well. So I tend to post most of my stuff that I'm doing on there, especially charities, overseas organisations that I recommend that I would totally um wish people would if they can and have the resources to go and visit and volunteer with it's it's amazing how much loving animals and how far it can take you around the world and what a difference you can make if you care enough i'm going to ask you my last question now and my last question is always about music because i believe that music and travel very much go hand in hand and if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel what is that song and what is the memory Wow. Um, you can think about it, don't worry. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I do listen to music. Favourite artist by by far is Prince. But when I travel, I tend to watch comedy on my phone. And one of the most memorable times I watched comedy was, I think I was travelling from Delhi down to Agra in the middle of the night on this one of these incredible buses that have these little curtain compartments. I mean, it was, you know, the sort of bus that, the families are on and animals are on it's just it's one of those beautiful things about traveling in india it's that chaotic thing and i was in my little cabbie hole with my with my curtain closed and i was watching the u.s office 
And obviously I'm a massive fan of the UK office, but also the US office. And it was just so surreal to be watching the US office on this, I think it's like a six hour journey. There was a, a flat tire. Um, first of all, I didn't even know I was on the right bus because it was all so confusing. I'd missed another bus um, through traffic. And um, yeah, when I think back about traveling in India and those long bus journeys, that's the one comedy that springs to mind, the US office. Love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the Big Travel Podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Lisa. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening to us. And we will be back very soon with more excellent guests. Thank you.